Well, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. You didn't take my advice and take a nap, but that's fine. You're here, so yeah, it's later. Um, well, I'm glad you're here. We're going to spend a little bit of time. What I my hope to do is that we're small enough that we can have some time to like engage with each other. Um, but I want to tell you the story about me and my ministry experience. Jacob and I were just talking about it, something that sort of transformed my ministry experience. And we're going to look at Jesus' um, beginning of his teaching ministry because I think there's some lessons to learn from there. Like, I don't have any best practices. I mean, I have a ton of best practices to share with you, but that's not what you need. Um, I don't think there's, like, one prescriptive model. Like, or, like, here, this is what works for my church in San Diego. That doesn't work for Eastvale. Like, there's things that are uniquely different about you and your ministry. So we're going to look at Jesus because he's the example that we want to look at and see what he did. Um, and my heart is this. Uh, compassion fatigue and burnout are a real thing for all of us in ministry. Compassion fatigue means you just literally check out when you're with people. You're, you're just so overwhelmed by caring people's needs. So it happens with health care workers. It happens with uh, just all kinds of industry psychologists. But for sure, for pastors, you're bearing the weight of all these people's needs, and then you still go home and have to care for your own needs. And often, we're the worst at caring for ourselves. So there's a little bit of self-care that we'll talk about that we see Jesus doing. Um, the burnout piece, we'll see how Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, doesn't burn out, and yet I would argue had the gnarliest ministry that anybody has. I don't care how big your youth group is. I don't care how big your church is. It's nothing in comparison to what Jesus is experiencing. And so we'll look at that together. So he's fully God, fully man, and we're going to look at the book of Mark. And Mark's aim is that he wants to prove and show you that Jesus is the son of man. Jesus' favorite title in the Synoptic Gospels, the first four books of the Bible, is son of man. Even though he's son of God, he really loves being called son of man because he identifies with us. And Hebrews reminds us that he is the great high priest. He's experienced everything we'll ever experience and yet without sin. And so there's something to learn from his example. So I want to tell you a story of the first four books of the, the Gospel of Mark. I want you to listen to the story, and, and maybe if you're a note taker or just in your head go, who am I in this story? You got some uh, pretty dumb disciples. Um, you have Jesus, and you have a bunch of haters around him, and then you have just a multitude there for all kinds of reasons. So it's a tricky political landscape that's happening right now. Sound familiar to 2021, maybe? So he's experiencing that. Uh, he's experiencing people infighting among each other. Have you experienced that at all in the last 20 months? He's experiencing fatigue because there's so much ministry to do. Anybody? And he's experiencing even his disciples not knowing how to get along with each other. Anybody have that on their team or staff or just really frustrated with maybe your lead or something like that. So all those are happening in these four first books, which is incredible. So they're not arguing over, like, should we put a video wall in? But they're definitely arguing over different stuff like that, okay? So we're going to look at that. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to, to Mark chapter 4. Eventually, we're going to do something called Lecto Divina, which is just means divine reading. And I'm going to ask you at some point to close your eyes. I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture and I want you to trust that God uniquely wants to speak to you and the collective all at once today. He's so good that he has something for you today that is going to be different from the person to the next of you. So I'm not a big fan of like, here's the three points you need to walk away with, and here's your two tips to like have a better youth ministry. What I want you to walk away with is like, God uniquely cares about you this morning, and he has something to say to you and me this morning. 
So a familiar passage that I've taught before, but this morning I was like wrecked. Because like, ah, oh, oh yeah, that's for me. So I'm as much of a practitioner as you are this morning. So we'll do that together. Make sense? Cool? And we might see some 11-month-year-olds like crawl down here, and I'm all for that. I'll put a water bottle right here and just see if he, yeah, come on. <laughs> so, and then we'll spend some time just talking together. So can I pray for us and as we start our morning? Lord, it's good to be together, and uh, I don't take lightly the fact that um, everybody had busy schedules and yet made a priority to come up here. And the reality is that life and ministry is still like nagging at us, and uh, there's an inbox that's filling up, and there's texts and uh, threads that are, are growing right now as the needs are mounting, and yet we just want to pause and be thankful for a, a moment away a moment to be together and to be with you. And I pray in these next moments that you do what only you can. I pray that you meet us and speak to us where we need, whether we're leading ministry or we're the spouse of somebody in ministry. God, that you would heal hurts, you would uh, uh, bring truth to lies that we're believing, and you'd show us a different way, a new normal of ministering um, that allows us to not be a statistic that was read last night, um, that allows uh, our marriages or future marriages to be intact, that our love for you would remain through the end, um, that we wouldn't be known by what we put out or output, but that we'd be just known as people just in love with you and allow you to be the shepherd that we learned last night, that we trust the care and management of our lives to you. And so we do that again in this time together. So we love you. Let your word speak to us and do as it needs to do. Amen. So Jesus starts in chapter 1. He starts teaching ministry, and his cousin John the Baptist is this kind of crazy guy. He's, we see him. He's got a beard. He's wearing camel hair. He's eating locusts and honey. So there's probably like bugs and honey stuck in his beard. And he's walking, away, he's walking around going, prepare the way. There's somebody that's coming. And so for hundreds of years, Israel's been waiting for this Messiah who's going to come and rule and reign and make things right. And they're talking about generation after generation is waiting for the one who's going to come and restore all things. He's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to rule, and he's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And, and so they're waiting for this guy. In the Old Testament, what we have is the Old Testament or the Old Covenant ends, and we see that there's a New Testament that begins. In between that, there's 400 years of silence. There's 400 years of Israel going, someday somebody's going to come and, and make things right. And we're under Roman rule and oppression at that point. And they're waiting for somebody to physically come in and make things right. And John starts coming. He's finally here. He's coming. Prepare the way. Everything we've been talking about, everything your grandma and your great-grandma and your great-grandma's grandma, they're all saying he's coming. I'm telling you, he's here. He's coming. Prepare the way. And Jesus, John's cousin, comes, and he baptizes them, and then he begins his teaching ministry. And Jesus' teaching ministry begins with um, him calling disciples. Now, in that time, you had Jewish culture that every good boy would be going to synagogue and learning, and they would all learn Torah. And there were certain levels of, like, selection. So for a rabbi to come to you and say, take my yoke and learn from me, was like you being called up to the majors. Everybody's learning, like, a basic level of Torah together. But over time, they weed them out and say, you didn't make the cut, buddy. You didn't make the cut. Go back to work with your dad. Go back to your family's trade. Only the elite of the elite, the cream of the crop, the most educated, the most gifted would have Rabbi Hezekiah say, come take my yoke and follow me. 
So we see Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two fishermen. He sees Peter and Andrew, and he, and he calls out to them while they're fishing and says, hey, you guys are fishers. Come follow me. I'll make you fisher of men. It's a shocking moment for them. Scripture says immediately they leave what they're doing. Because the thing that they had dreamed about their whole life was just like, could you imagine if we get called by a rabbi? And yet now we're relegated back to doing our father's trade. We're back fishing, and we don't love it, and it kind of stings that we didn't make it, and that's a bummer. And maybe we see our buddy who made it, and we see him walk around town. And around town is like 100 people. So it's really easy to bump into each other. And I'm back fishing. And yet now here's this rabbi. We don't know anything about this guy, but he's called us. And we're going. So they abandon everything. He walks a little further, and he sees the sons of Zebedee, and they're fixing some nets. So they're back at their, they're not the cream of the crop. They're not the most educated. They're not the most qualified. They're mending nets. And he says, come and follow me. And they leave their dad, who's in the boat. <laughs> like, they don't even, like, dad, let, like, let's help you bring stuff in. They're just like, dad, got to go. And they follow Jesus. So Jesus' teaching ministry, you see he starts calling like the island of misfit toys to follow him. It's not the most educated. It's not the most qualified. Anybody relate to that? That's who Jesus picks. So maybe around town the other rabbis are going like, what is this guy doing? We all know Peter. He's like, he didn't even have the Ten Commandments memorized. Like, that guy's an idiot now. Like, he can't even catch fish. Like, he's got to tell him to throw the net on the other side. Like, he's a bad fisherman, let alone follower of the, you know, a rabbi. So they start following him, and, and Jesus starts teaching. And the first thing that he does is he goes to synagogue, and he starts teaching. And as he's teaching, people go, whoa. It says they're astonished at his teaching because he's teaching as one who has authority. It's an illiterate society that Jesus is in right now. And so there's these guys called the scribes. And the scribes are these elevated people who, uh, they've said, you guys are interpreters of Yahweh's law. So when there's a dispute among us, we go, I don't know what that we're supposed to do. I caught a fish. He's trying to take my fish. What do we do? What does Torah say? What does Yahweh's law say? And scribes would go, well, it says this and this. And they would they would debate and come up with a verdict of, like, we think this is the heart of law. And what started as 10 laws is now 613 laws because they just like so many laws. Like, let's just keep adding. So it's created burden on people. It's created more impossibility. The, the burden of law has been there. So they're interpreting it. And Jesus comes in, and as he's teaching, they're going, he's not interpreting it. He's, like, talking like he's the guy who wrote this. Like, he's, he's teaching in such a way that, it's almost as if he was there from the beginning writing this, and we can't make sense of it. But all we know is that there's something distinct about his teaching ministry. And the boys are just going like, isn't this great? <laughs> like, we're with this guy where we don't smell like fish anymore. Like, it's incredible. This guy's teaching. Like, he's way better than that, Rabbi. Like, and those scribes, like, our guy's the boss. Like, we're stoked. And Jesus goes, and he starts healing people. And he heals a demon-possessed man. And he heals this demon-possessed man. And the demon comes out and says, you're the son of God. You're the son of man. I know who you are. You're God in heaven. What do you want with me? 
And the disciples are there, and they're just going, huh, that's weird. That's so crazy. Like, he healed a demon guy. They missed the part that it was like, yeah, you're the son of man, and, and you're God in the flesh right now. And so from then on, Jesus tells all the demons to not say who he is and shut up. He says, be quiet. Eventually, we'll see that in Mark 4 right now. Same word, be quiet. So they're following, they're seeing this guy teach with authority, they're seeing him heal, they're, he- they're seeing him cast out demons, they're hearing these demons initially say, that's the son of God, and they're still not getting it. They're just stoked to be with the guy. This is awesome. And now, news about Jesus is traveling. And as Jesus is traveling and his teaching ministry experience is expanding, the scribes are getting a little more disgruntled, and people around them are going, this is uniquely different. And we want to hear more about this. Jesus' ministry goes into full steam in two ways. One, he heals a leper. And now lepers are the outcast of society. They're the, the most like, dismissed people of all people. They live on the outskirts of town, and, and if somebody comes near, they have to say, unclean, unclean, don't, don't come near, unclean. In fact, the, rabbi, the rabbis and the scribes of the time, that if they were to walk on the same street, they'd see that and they would strategically go around and go, we'll go this way. In some cases, if they'd see them, they'd pick up rocks and say, get out of here. Yeah, you're unclean. Get out of here. Like, as if it wasn't enough that I had to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Just get out. You filthy dog, just get out of here. You're good for nothing. And yet what we see Jesus do is he runs towards them. And he touches him, the unthinkable, and he heals him. And what he says to the demons, he says to the leper, he says, don't tell anybody I did this. Yeah, right. Right? My whole life I've been relegated to say, unclean, unclean, I'm I'm still recovering from the stones that were thrown at me. No one's touched me. I haven't had physical contact in years. This guy touches me, and I'm healed, and I'm not supposed to tell anybody about it. Nope, not happening. The leper goes, oh, yeah, you got it, Jesus. Jesus freaking healed me. That guy, he did it. Remember I had no fingers? Look at all fingers. Remember my nose? It's back. It's awesome. It's a cute little nose. And it says, from that moment, Jesus' ministry went nuts. Just lightning speed. So much so that I'm winded because of 6,000 feet in that jump. Sorry. (sighs) So much so that Jesus can no longer teach in towns. Again, 50 to 100 people in a town. He now has to teach in open fields. He's in Grand Central Park now, like teaching, because crowds are amassing. It's not tens, it's not dozens, it's thousands, which is unique. It's, in our equation, it's like a million people gathered in a park to hear this one guy talk. We would say that's a lot of people, right? We would say there's something unique and distinct about that. We're stoked to get 100 kids in our youth ministry. 200, 300, 400, 1,000. He's got crazy crowds. 
And they're all there for different reasons. And you see Jesus, like, they're just clamoring for his attention. They're just trying to touch him to get healed. You can heal my crazy uncle. You can hear my brother. You can hear my sick sister. And when he would go to people's houses, the paparazzi would show up outside. They'd show up outside clamoring. So much so, the craziest thing, sometimes we read scripture and just, like, don't understand, like, if this happened to your day, that would be weird. There's people crowded out outside his house. There's people crowded inside Peter's house. And these guys go like, that's the guy who does it, so let's rip the roof off. Let's tear the roof off. Let's create a pulley system and drop this guy down in front of Jesus. That's a weird day, right? Like if somebody came to your house and they ripped off your roof, would you be like, that's kind of weird? You'd be like, who's fixing my roof? <laughs> like, let alone this paralytic guy. Like, let's fix my roof. So that's Jesus' life. Ministry's busy. It's booming, but it's exhausting. And we start seeing a practice that Jesus does. It says that often he withdraws to lonely places. Often the disciples are going, in the crowds and in the roofs being ripped off, they go, where'd Jesus go? And Jesus is alone and he's praying in solitude with the Father. And he's recharging and he's having conversations with the Father. And he gets back into healing and casting out demons and roofs being ripped off and thousands of people clamoring for him. At the same time, the scribes are going, this is not good for business. He's becoming more popular than we are. People aren't necessarily going to get law interpreted. They're going to the source. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He heals on the Sabbath. Everybody go, ooh, he heals on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Back then, bad no-no. You don't heal on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to do any kind of work. And Jesus meets a guy with a withered hand, and he says, Psh, not only am I going to heal your hand, but your sins are forgiven. How about that? How about that, scribes? And it says, immediately the scribes go to their political opponents, the Herodians. It's like the Trump supporter and the Biden supporter go, we don't agree on anything. The one thing that we agree on is that we hate Jesus. Let's trap him. They do that. Political tension coming together to say we hate Jesus. Let's trap him. Let's catch him. Let's destroy him is what scripture says. So now there's crowds coming, Jesus is teaching, and, and now all these haters are in the crowd. And they're trying to catch him, and they're trying to say, well, what about this? So they can, they can parse law, and Jesus is going, well, this is a hard law. It's this. And they walk away going, oh, whoops. We need better questions. Crowds are growing, crowds are going. They're coming from as far as 72 miles. That's a long distance of walking. Nobody had cars, nobody had Uber. They're walking, they're riding boats, they're 72 miles to come and see this Jesus. And the crowds grow so much that at some point Jesus says, Scripture says that he's, feared that he's fearful that he's going to get crushed. The crowds are so big. If you've ever been to a concert and you've been to the front row, and then all of a sudden like everybody's rushing it, and you're like, oh dude, this barricade's going to kill me right now. Like, you know, I love Travis Scott, but I don't want to get kicked in the face. Like, this is not good. That's what's happening. So he's like, boys, get a boat. <laughs> I need to teach in a boat. Because then at least on the water, no one can come and bum rush me. Meanwhile, the disciples are busy handing people over. Oh, this guy's got leprosy. He's coming to see you. Demon possessed, the lame. This guy can't talk. They're busy ministering. They still don't get what's happening, but it's kind of fun to be a part of. But it's weird, too. And they're ministering, and they still don't know who Jesus is. They just think he's a great teacher who's got a big crowd right now. 
the Herodians and the scribes, they start saying, I think this guy is teaching from the power of Satan. That was an awesome grunt. Right when I said Satan, it was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'll pay you later. Um, to trap him, they can't trap him anymore, so now they start telling the crowds and saying, like, you don't want to listen to this guy. He's got the power of Satan. That's, that's what he's doing. Jesus' mother and brother show up because they're like, clearly Jesus is tired and he's a little crazy and we need to take him back to Nazareth and he needs to take a nap. And that's the scene. Jesus is tired. He's fearful of getting crushed. He's exhausted and withdrawing often. He's got people who love him and want the message of him, but he equally has people that are wanting to entrap him, snare him, catch him. They think he's crazy. They think he's coming with the power of Satan, or they just don't know who he is. And that's the scene we find Jesus in in this moment. He begins teaching in parables in the morning, and he does it because he recognizes who the crowd is. He recognizes that he's the biggest show in town and that there's some that genuinely want to come and hear good news and receive healing at a deeper level maybe than they even know. And there's equally people there to try and catch him and ensnare him. And so he starts speaking in parables and starts saying things like, he who has ears, let him hear. Meaning, if you really want to hear the message that I'm telling you, you're listening for it and you're going to hear the good news that I'm bringing to you. If you're here to catch me in some kind of like parsing of law or to show that, see, he's crazy, I told you, you're going to miss everything I'm telling you. You're going to walk away so confused of what's happening right now. So he's teaching to thousands on the Sea of Galilee. He's at the shore. And at the end of the day, this is where we start our chapter. Verse, four, uh, verse uh, 35, chapter 4. That day, after all that's happened, after all this teaching, after all this accumulation of ministry and growth, that day, when evening came, he, meaning Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go to the other side to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to a new town. Let's cross. We'll go over there. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. So the crowd said, oh, you're going to do the boat thing? We'll get boats too and we'll follow. <laughs> you're not escaping that easy. We got boats too, dude. Fishermen, come on. We got it. And a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it nearly became swamped. Jesus was in the stern and he was sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. The Sea of Galilee is huge. It's like, think Lake Tahoe. It's, it's big, it's vast, and it's not like this like placid thing. 
the way the topography is, is it's, there's this funnel, and it creates these crazy windstorms. Like, if you want to Google later, like, storm on Galilee, you can just see, like, iPhone footage of, like, iPhone footage of just, like, storms coming. These guys are fishermen. Half the disciples are fishermen, at least, who've charted these waters. It's evening, and Jesus says, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. Now, I'm not an expert fisherman, but I've watched, like, Deadliest Catch, so I feel, like, pretty, like, pretty up to things. And um, they would know the water. They would know the terrain. They would know the fishing spots. They would know, like, what happens and the rhythms and the patterns of the day, the patterns of the season, uh, this channel you want to be on, this channel you want to avoid. So I, I just wonder if these guys who don't get it, they're tired just like Jesus is in a different way. They've been ministering the whole time. Though Jesus is tired. These guys are tired. They're like the backstory. They're exhausted. They're not sleeping either. There's pe- they're repairing the roof of their mom's house because some dude ripped it up. They're tired from all the people clamoring and wanting attention, and they're, they're maybe holding the crowd back of like, just give Jesus some space. Like, please, just give him some space. He'll get to it. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. I wonder if in their head they're going, like, we know you're the rabbi, but uh, we're kind of big deals on the sea, and it's not a good time to go. Like, you don't want to do that, Jesus. But they're out there. And the squall comes. These aren't like, I got caught in a a lake by my house in San Diego uh, when I was 12, and a storm came up. And I was in a rowboat by myself. And I had no idea. Like, why my parents let me have a rowboat by myself? I don't know. Like, it's really hard. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm dying right here, right now. Like, can't get out of it. These guys are seasoned fishermen. Like, we know how to get out of storms. It's not my first time being in the Sea of Galilee and the wind rising up. Like, we know what to do. So I just imagine these guys going, like, Peter, get out of the way. The sons of Zebedee are here. It's this way. We're going to navigate it. We can get through this. Like, it's not our first time seeing waves and, and wind. We got this. We're expert fishermen acquainted with these waters. This isn't new territory. We can manage. The storm's rising, the tension's rising, but we're skilled and qualified. We can do this. We may not understand the other parts of the ministry that we're doing, but we can get Jesus safely to the other side. If you've ever been in like a panic moment, there's a, the level of like, okay, it's kind of it's scary. But there's a level of tension rising. And there's a breaking point for all of us. It's like, get out of the way. Like your voice kind of does like this weird like puberty thing again. You're like, oh my God, get out of the way. Like you're just like, get out of the way. And it gets to that point of that tension where no ma- no or no skill is helping us in this storm. We're screwed. Where's the master? Where he's sleeping. Well, lucky Jesus, like I'm tired too. I've been ministering just like he has. But here he is asleep on the stern, like, that's cute. Wake that guy up. We're all gonna die. And he's the one who told us to come out here. I knew it was a bad idea. I knew it was a dumb idea. Jesus, don't you care if we drowned? The crazy part about that question, they have no idea what they just asked. Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care about our lives? And Jesus is going like, yeah. More than you ever know, I care about your life. A couple chapters later, you're seeing you're going to be hanging on a cross. 
dying for the ones that I, despised by the ones that I created, rejected by the ones that I created. And I show the extent of mine that I was just in heaven a bit ago, surrounded by praise in my rightful place, and yet I took on flesh, became man, and I'm dwelling among you. Do I care if you drown? You bet I do. More than you'll ever know. You still won't even understand it. Even post-resurrection, it'll take you a while to understand the depths of how much I care. The stupid question that you just asked right now, and yet Jesus in love doesn't even answer the question. All he does is go like the Thanos move, like a boss. He just goes quiet. Like the Greek right there, it's not like a gradual, like, okay, the wind's fine. It just like immediately stopped. Demon, quiet. Storm, quiet. And the other guys are kind of like wiping the water off their face and going, what the heck was that? Don't you care if we drowned? And he doesn't answer. And then Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Like, I was sleeping. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You've seen me do all these things. You've seen me heal people. You've seen me heal the leopard, the, the withered hand. You've seen me do all these things. And boys, do you still not get it? Do you still not get, like, who I am? Like, you didn't hear the demon tell you who I was. You didn't understand that. All this prophecy that you've been waiting for the Messiah, and here I am in the flesh in front of you, and you still are like, where is it? Where is he? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? There's something unique about that language when he says, you have little faith. It's not like a, you suck at life phrase. It's like a cute nickname. It's, it's a unique piece of Greek that exists in the passage. It's like, oh, you little doubter. Come here, buddy. Like, it's going to be okay. It's like the graciousness of God is not condemnation. The beauty of Emmanuel, God coming flesh, is that he came down to our level so that we could understand. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? All the things you've been waiting for, disciples, I am who I said I am. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And the disciples are terrified. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, like the demon we got, like that was weird. The crowds, that was interesting. But literally Jesus just did something that only is a God thing. There's multiple psalms that talk about God is the one who commands the winds and the waves. He sits a boundary stone and it says the wave goes no further. That, that's only an attribute that God can do. Who is this? It's not just cool to be a part of the rabbi's crew. It's not just cool to be a part of a big ministry. He's not just a good teacher. He's something more. Who is this? That's where our story ends. Four chapters later, finally Peter comes to, there's a boat situation again. They think it's a ghost, and it's Jesus walking on water. Pretty cool. And eventually Peter comes to the, the saying and going, I know who you are. You're the one we've been waiting for. But in this moment, they don't know who he is. Isn't that crazy? You've been walking with Jesus for like a year, and you don't know who he is. But four questions I just wonder if we've been asking about ourselves and our ministries. And four things I just want to leave you with, and we can talk a little bit. The first is this, is that the duh, storms are part of life. Amen?
It's not a win, or it's not an if, it's a win. Storms are going to come. They are a natural part of it. It's 20 months that we've been in ministry. If you've been in ministry that long, some of you started in ministry during the season, which is like, it's insane. Political tensions, mass, no max, vax, no vax. Before we even got to like, who is Jesus? We have new things to divide over. We have new climates where we ne I never thought I'd have so much gray in the last 20 months because I've been in so many conversations as a pastor of do we open our doors or close our doors? Do we go online or do we not? Is it time for students to meet again? Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Maybe. You didn't move fast enough. You moved too slow. You don't love our community. You're, not, you're loving it great. We've been at your church for a long time, and you've been shepherding us, and you walk through every season of life with our family, but we're going to go to this church because they're meeting in person. We're going to go to this church because they align more politically with where we're at. Anybody relate to that in the last 20 months? It's like your family of God ghosted you for 20 months. There's people that I'm seeing come back, and it's like, where were you? I, I didn't even know you still came here. It's great to see you, but what the heck? Storms are here. Storms are coming. Like I talked last night, the, the wave of grief, the tsunami of grief. If you think about a tsunami, it's an earthquake in an ocean, and it, it starts small. And maybe what we felt like is a tsunami, it's actually not the tsunami. It's the, the big wave is coming. And that's of grief and of pain and depression and anxiety. I guarantee you all are experiencing that and people in your ministry, you've never heard levels, 23 years in ministry, I've never heard levels of anxiety and depression like this in my life. I have, I have no bearings for what is here or what's coming. But I know this, is that storms are coming and that's a part of life and it's not unique and there's comfort in that. And in this instance, Jesus is the one that invites them into the storm for like a lecture lab series. Do you trust me? Do you know who I am? Do you still have no faith? The second is this, is that Jesus asleep on the boat is not a sign of his indifference. I've definitely asked the question in life and in the last 20 months, don't you care about my life? Don't you? It feels like I'm drowning, Jesus. Don't you care? I, I'm so disoriented by the storm, I don't know where to go. I don't know, go left, right, sit, stand. I, I'm just, I don't, I don't know what to do. And I have staff looking at me going like, what are we supposed to do? I'm like, I don't know. What do you guys think? And the ideas that we come up with, all of a sudden you can't do it anymore. Summer camp last year before, like, came closed, right? We came up with five different iterations of what to do in youth ministry. What's open? Oh, I think we can get a KOA. Nope, that just closed. But like hours of work, we'll do this, we got these leaders, we book this, we put these deposits, oh, that shut down. Eventually it became like, well, we live in San Diego, we're doing a beach camp. But we can't stay together so they can go home every day. And, but just the amount of energy and disorientation just for one simple thing was exhausting. Don't you care that we're drowning? Jesus is not indifferent in that situation. And he's not indifferent now. It seems like it would have been better if we had Jesus in those meetings, like physically present to help us know what to do. And yet we have something better. For those in Christ, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that we're in him. 
so we have his physical presence. Like, I know it'd be nice to have him on the boat, but he's asleep. But he's actually with me right now. He's with you right now. It's better. It doesn't feel like it, but it's better. He says it's better. And you have the Holy Spirit. That's even better. It's better that I go because one who's greater than I will come, and he'll give you all wisdom and discernment, and he'll be with you in all things. So his asleepness is not his lack of care for you or indifference for those disciples in that moment. He's very mindful and present. In fact, I'd say this. I think the point that he wanted to say to his disciples and us was adopt the posture of the master. Say it a different way. Put down the oar and pick up a cushion. You're trying and doing more and in exhaustion, maybe you're like me, I have a hard time shutting off and I start doing more and my decision making becomes worse. And in panic, I'm trying to do more and shoulder weight that wasn't actually intended for me. I can get us through the storm. I'm pretty confident in my skill in that. I'm actually getting kind of tired. <laughs> Uh-oh, panic levels are arising. It's getting worse than I thought it would be. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, me and the senior pastor were like, let's be the most pessimistic we can be. Like, we're not going back in April, no way. We're like September of 2020. You know, and everyone's looking at us like, yeah, right. You know what I mean? It's like November of 2021. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. Tension levels are rising. I'm relying on skill, and I think the call of the master is adopt my posture. Why can't Jesus sleep? Not only because he's tired, but that he's so full and confident in the Lord and the Father and his care, like we heard last night. If he's a good shepherd, he knows what the sheep need. My staff and I have been going for the last two months over Psalm 23, verse by verse. There's a great book I recommend. Shepherds look at Psalm 23 if you've never read it. It's a beautiful thing. So he's not indifferent. He's at peace and he's rest and he's God. So the storm is nothing to him. So what would it look like if I were to just say, like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to put down the oar, and I'm just going to, like, lay down. And if you were, like, in that moment in kindergarten, I had it, where it was, like, uh, you had the mats on the ground, you know, and you get, like, the graham cracker and apple juice afterwards. That was my favorite part. <laughs> um, I was a kid that napped like this. I'd put my head down, but then I'd, like, look up. Is anybody else, like, napping? Okay. I was, like, do that for, like, the 20 minutes or whatever it was. Even if that's what we can muster, that's what I would be like on the boat with Jesus. Okay, I have enough faith to like put my head down. Jesus, you awake yet? No? Okay. Still don't care? Okay. Okay. If that's your posture, great. Learning to adopt the posture of the master. Why can't I do that? Because who is this? Well, he's God. And I can trust in him. And I can lean into him. And I can rest in him. If he's at rest, then I don't need to panic. If he's sovereign, then I can trust him. And I can rest in that. So adopt the posture of the master. So storms come. He's with us. He's not indifferent. But he's at rest because he's God. So adopt the posture of the master. Put down the oar and pick up the cushion. The last thing I want to say, I could talk about this passage for a long time, but a couple encouragements for you. Your output is not your worth. Your output doesn't earn you favor with the Lord today. You are capable and gifted and called if you relate to the disciple this morning where you're like, I just love Jesus, and I was stoked that he said, follow me. And that's where I started. And that's my starting point. That's actually the point to return to. Come back to that place. Just be in love with Jesus and trust in who he is.
And from there, in the overflow of loving him, let ministry come out of that. Not new models and best practices, and I saw this at youth ministries, and I digital, like, whatever this game, and we'll do this this week. Like, shut up. I just love Jesus. I love these people that he's entrusted me with. Spirit of God, what do you want to do? And it might be the most basic thing, and that's okay. One of the great things about the pandemic at one point was like, you know, we used to go to Hume, or we used to do like these big trips somewhere. You know what's going to feel like that right now? If we can like go to In-N-Out and take our kids to that. And maybe we can take them to Boomers to play miniature golf because it's outside. That's going to be a great day. It's not sexy at all. But the whole point of what we were doing was so that we could build relationship with these students. That we could point them to the God that's changed our lives to say, that's him. He is who he says he was. You might be asking, who is this? And we're saying, he's the son of man. He is who he says he was. He's the hope of the nations. Like, that's what you need. So your output does not equate to your worth. You doing more things in this next season doesn't mean you're more loved by God. You're fully loved by God in this moment, right where you're at. In your frailty, in your brokenness, in your confusion, in your doubt, in your fatigue, you're fully loved right now. Oh, you little doubter of faith, come here. That's who you are to him. Sons and daughters of the king. Make sense? So doing more, that's not the way forward. Panicking in the storm and trying to use your expertise, that's not the way forward. The way forward is resting in him, trusting who he is, picking up the cushion, putting down the oar, and allowing him to be God and lead and guide your ministry. It's really hard to like, how do you show your elders that? What's the quantifiable thing? You know, like, give me the numbers, boys. What's that look like? So we're not fixing that today. That's a conversation over lunch. We're having that as a staff in our cabin this morning. Our freaking senior pastor, you know, like, <laughs> like if you could just get there, you know, like, we, we get it. But the first place you start with is the first love, trusting who he is, who he says he was, knowing that you have a high priest that's experienced everything you'll ever experience, yet without sin, and grew the biggest ministry that you would ever dream to have by doing simple acts, resting, taking care of himself, being with the Father, surrounding himself with a few people, ragamuffins, and teaching them along the way. If we just did that, do you know what the church would look like? It'd be insane. And there would be haters and naysayers and all those things along the way, but that's not unique. So my encouragement to you, put down the oar, pick up a cushion, Rest in the Father today. Go back to those things of the first love. It's so crazy how ministry has crowded out my ability to just love Jesus sometimes. And I'm, I stand guilty of that. But put it down. Just come back to the first things. The first thing is the main thing. Being with Jesus, adopting his postures, and following his way. Make sense? There's a lot of things in there. That could be like 20 sermons, so I apologize. But little nuggets in the story. Who do you identify with? Second question, what's the lie you're believing today? And three, 
what's the good news for you this morning? Maybe just share that in small words. We got like 10 minutes together. Who do you identify with? What's the lie you're believing? What's the good news declared for you this morning? I know those are hard questions to like answer right away. But if you have something, share. If you need to think about it, share. Or if you want to do it together, that's great too. One or two others, if anything. Any others? Maybe one or two more.
No, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it made me think of like Mary and Martha, right? If I could just be busy prepping stuff in the kitchen, but I'm really upset that there's somebody sitting at the feet of Jesus when I need a lot of help in the kitchen right now. And, you know, I just, I need to know, like, there's place settings to get, and there's like, come on, like, there's a lot of stuff to do, and I, I need to know, is it 10 guests or 8 guests, and what kind of food, and do I serve the order? Like, there's all this busyness. And uh, and Jesus was like, yeah, but she chose the right thing. She chose the better thing, was just to be at my feet. How in the world is that better? <laughs> like, people still need to eat, right? Like, <laughs> like there's stuff to do. It looks kind of like lazy. She's sitting at his feet. Like, we get it. I'm tired, too. I want to sit down. Like, so, yeah. But what to do? And the target's moving if it's about a program, if it's about a ministry strategy, you know. It's people first. If you were my staff, I'd say, we, what do our people need? And now we design program out of that. It's not build it and they will come. So the target never moves. The target stays. It sounds like the Bible study, like Jesus Sunday School flannel graph, Jesus. Like the answer is Jesus. Be at his feet. Be with him. Remember your identity. You're in him. You're his. You're loved. No matter what you do, you don't earn his favor. So what you had a hundred, you know, I was at a church that grew by a thousand people a year and that sounds really cool, but it felt a lot like Jesus's ministry growing. It was overwhelming. Budget didn't match the growth of the church. So what do we do? What's the right thing to do for that many people? I have no idea. Be with Jesus and sit at his feet and then allow him to lead his church because he's the one who said he would build it, you know? 
as your kids get older, I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. I was telling my children's pastor this yesterday. They would draw me uh, pictures in like Sunday school and they'd bring it and we put it like on the refrigerator. Maybe your parents did that or, or some kind of like art, you know, it's like your hand and it's a turkey. <laughs> but before when it was just like you gave markers to them and then they draw something, you're like, what is this? And I like look at my wife and be like, do you know what it is? I'm like, I have no idea. And like turning it all different ways, like, oh, thanks, baby. That's so sweet. Like, what is it? It's like, it's a tree, daddy. And you're like, of course it's a tree. It's the best tree I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh my gosh. This, this way. Yeah, we're going to put it right there. This is, that's how I feel like God views us in ministry. <laughs> like, legit. Baby, it's not about, like, what you created. It's about, like, your heart was for me, and you thought of me, and I'm going to put it right here with all your other work on the fridge, buddy. Come, I love you so much. Of course it's a tree. <laughs> yeah. What's the right answer? The right answer is just to be enveloped in, in love with Jesus, and our hearts are so for him that he takes these little drawings, and he makes them into kingdom things that we could never anticipate. That's so fun. So just delight in being his kid and paint him a little tree today. You know, you're so cute. Oh, Dom, you're so cute with your little analogy. Oh, God, like, I just love him. So the heart of the Father is for you. So my encouragement today is to shut off the ministry hat over these next couple of days. It'll be there when you come home. Rest in him. Come back to that first place. And from that, just see what he'll do. It sounds so dumb but it's and basic, but that really is the way forward in ministry. What's the heart of the Father? What's his heart for the people that he's entrusted you with? Through prayerful discernment, take small steps to allow him to lead. And stop outputting. Your elders will be frustrated with that, maybe. Your lead pastor will have questions about that. That's what leading up looks like. What if we just came back to the heart of why we got into ministry? I didn't get into ministry to collect a paycheck. Like some of you don't collect paychecks. When I first became a teaching pastor, my first ministry job, I made $3,000 a year. And I thought I was balling. My rent was 400, but I made $237 a month. And my wife married me making that much money. And I had no ambition of being like, oh, there's gonna be a lot of zeros at the end of that, you know. I love people. I love Jesus. I couldn't believe that he allowed me to be a part of it. I was that dude that threw down his net and said, he said, follow him. This is awesome. Let's get back to that. And then if that's you, that's the disciples you're creating in your youth ministry. Don't you want that? Instead of guys that are thinking program and build bigger and you just want people who love Jesus and can tell people about them. So go paint some trees. Go take a nap. We're going to break for 10 minutes, and then we'll be back in here. So thanks for coming. God, help stick what needs to stick. Thanks for this group of men and women. Help them know that they're loved fully today, not by what they do, but because they're yours. And you delight in their, them as your kids. And um, as we're in storms of various kinds, remind us that you're with us, and you're not indifferent, but you're very present in that. And uh, you allow us and create a space that we can lie down and rest. So help us to do that now. In Jesus' name. Amen.